Turn with me, please, to Joshua, chapter 24, verses 1 through 24. It's Joshua, chapter 24, verses 1 through 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord... He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over to the Jordan, came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And then serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day who you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done good, having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, 
Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Old Testament narratives like Joshua 24 that remind us of the importance of seasons of renewal where the people of God can evaluate who they are and who you are. And I pray that today you would find a people here at College Park Church who would begin to do the same, who would take a season of evaluating who we are in light of who you are and what that means for us in terms of how we do church. So come now, please, and help us to think carefully and deeply and in some cases maybe in a new way about what it means for us to be the church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to take a break from our study of Romans 8. And we want to spend some time today talking about who we are as a church and where we are headed in terms of shepherding and what that means for every single one of us. Today I want to help you understand, or maybe have you think about, what is your vision of what church should be like? Or maybe you can think of it this way. Why did you come today, or why do you come to College Park Church regularly? If you're a first-time visitor today, we're going to talk about what it means for us to be the church, and so we're going to invite you into a conversation about what it means for us to commit to one another, to help each other grow in godliness. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're trying to figure out the claims of Christ, and you've always kind of wondered, so what is the church all about? I hope that today you'll get a sense of what the ideal is, and to be honest, we're not there yet. We're trying to get there, and God's doing some things in the heart of our eldership to try and help us think about what it means to be College Park Church. This church was started in 1985. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the planting of this church. And this fall, we're going to have a Sunday specifically dedicated to celebrating that pretty significant moment in our church's history. God has been faithful to this church for 30 years. Started in 1985 with the Indiana Fellowship of Regular Baptist Churches. Uh, ten families met. They planted the church. And they met over in Holiday, in the Holiday Inn down here in Casino Room B. It's kind of ironic that a Baptist church would start in Casino Room B. I don't know. I just always found that to be funny. Then um, after they grew, they moved to a warehouse, uh, purchased this property at 96th in town. 1992, built the first sanctuary. When you pull up onto the property here, you can see a steeple. Underneath that steeple is where the first sanctuary was. Then in 1997, we built another sanctuary where our nursery presently is. And then in 2000, we moved into this facility here. Over the last 30 years, God has been faithful to this church, starting from 10 families to now an average attendance of about 4,000 people. And now we're just beginning to think about what it means to reach our city after long-term commitments to reaching unreached peoples and underserved in our city. 
And at the same time that all these things are happening, our elders are asking some really important questions about what it means to shepherd you individually. What does it mean to shepherd a congregation of 4,000 people? And so today I want to tell you a little bit about our discussions, help you understand how Joshua 24 and some other texts relate to that, and then introduce to you what we're going to call covenant renewal. And through all of this, my hope is that you'll have a new understanding of what it means to be a part of this church. If you're a member, you understand what you committed yourself to. If you're not a member, that you'll see what it really means to be a member and really what a vision biblically is of what the church is supposed to be. So why are we talking about this particular topic? Today what I want to do is lay out a biblical, historical, and practical vision of covenant renewal. And by that I mean church covenant renewal. And this today is really our first official step as an eldership trying to seek how do we care for the needs of a large church family. At our elder retreat back in January, we discussed a a number of things as it relates to our church's future and where we are. And we're thrilled with the blessing that God has given us. In the last five years, we've seen a 34% increase in attendance. At the same time, we've seen a 57% and a 67% increase in membership and in small groups. So the good news in that is that our church is becoming more committed to one another as we have more people that are coming. As well, you know, the last two years, we've had two Christmas offerings that are over a million dollars. Since, like... 1996, we've given some $8.4 million to missions. But you know what? Half of the total amounts of Christmas offering money that have been given, half have been given in the last six years. So sometimes it's a struggle. I know with a large church, you, you come here and you, you, you see somebody and you're like, Hey, I didn't know you. How long have you been going here? And the person's like, a year. You know, that's, that's kind of hard. Or, or you come and you don't know everyone or you look around and there, there's something kind of hard at times about a large church. There's also something really wonderful. And what's really wonderful is that collectively we're able to do more, give more, and be able to accomplish God's purposes on earth in a different way than we would if we were a church of a smaller size. So there's something beautiful and wonderful about being large, and yet there's something also dangerous about it. And that danger relates to how do we shepherd and care for one another. So for the next, uh, for the last number of months and for the next number of months, our elders have been and we're going to continue to discuss two very important questions. And here what those questions are. Those questions are, first, what does it mean to biblically shepherd a church of 4,000? What does the Bible call us to do? And the second question is, how do we practically shepherd a very large church? Now the reason that question is important is because when I was in a smaller church setting, about four, five, six hundred people, I could take attendance just visually by looking at the congregation. Now, I still see a lot of what happens in the congregation. I see when you text or um, when your kids go out three times in a service for the bathroom. or I mean, there's a lot that happens, and I get it, and it's okay. There's grace for that, usually. Um, <laughs> But I I can't, and our elders can't, take attendance by merely looking at the audience and saying, so, hey, have you seen the Johnsons in a while? I haven't seen them. In a smaller church context, you can leverage relationships that everybody has with one another, but you don't have that in a large church setting. And so what we're trying to do is to figure out, so what do we do about that? 
Do we just say, well, we, we can't fix that or there's nothing we can do about it? Or do we begin to think about what are some things that we can do intentionally to try and do a better job in shepherding you as a congregation? So our first two steps are these. First, as of today, we're going to be talking about the church covenant and highlighting the importance of that so that we are reminded about what it means for all of us to be the church together. For some of you, you joined the church, and that was the first time you read the church covenant, and you haven't read it again in a number of years. Some of you never read it, and some of you don't even know there is a church covenant. So there I want to just kind of bring this up to the surface so you can see what it is and realize the importance of it. And then secondly, we're going to invite you, those of you who are church members, to reflect on this covenant for the next 30 days, and then to respond back to our eldership to tell us that, yes, you're here. And yes, you agree that this covenant and you reaffirm all of what this covenant means. So this process is going to um, help us to know not only what it means to be a church, but also to who is in our church still. So this covenant renewal is just a tool for our elders to facilitate this vision of shepherding at a better level. So what exactly does this mean? Well, let's start with the word covenant. And we need to start here because I think... If we're honest, we don't live in a very covenant-oriented world anymore, do we? At, at every level of society, we break our promises quickly. We think in terms of contracts. Or even when it comes to church, most people don't think of church as a covenant sort of community. Frankly, if we're honest, we think of it more like consumers. Often the question that we ask when we leave a church on Sunday is not how do we keep our covenant with one another or who do we pour our life into. Often the question that we ask is, so what did you get out of this Sunday? Or what did you get out of the sermon? And I understand that at one level, and frankly, there's nothing wrong with that at a certain level. The problem is, is when that becomes overly the norm and we don't think about covenant, we really haven't understood what a biblical vision is of the church. So what do I mean by covenant? Here's a definition. An oath-bound promise whereby one party solemnly pledges to bless or serve another party in some specific way. Here's my definition. A covenant is a solemn, relationship-defining promise. Think of any covenant that you've made. If you're married, you, you made a covenant. And in that covenant, it was solemn. You, when the pastor said, Say, I do. You didn't say, I guess. Right? You didn't say that. It's a solemn and then relationship-defining promise. It defines what you're going to do and what the other person is going to do. This idea of covenant is found all throughout the Bible. In fact, you could really say that covenant is central to the central message of the Bible. Think, for instance, of all the covenants. You have a covenant with Adam in Genesis 1 after Adam and Eve sinned. There's a covenant with Noah after the flood. There's a covenant with Abraham that God would bless him and make him the father of the Jewish people. There's the covenant with David that God would make him the king and that a descendant of his would reign in Israel forever. There's the Mosaic covenant where God gives the law to Moses. And then, of course, in Jeremiah, there's the new covenant where God promises a new heart and a new relationship with him. So you could say that the Bible is interwoven with the idea of covenant all the way through it. So covenant is a very significant topic when it comes to what the Bible really is all about. Now go over to Joshua 24, the text that Richard read for us. 
Throughout biblical history, there are strategic moments when God's people would take the covenants that they had made and they would renew them. And the reason is, is that we tend to forget. We, we kind of go into a normal, everyday existence, and it can be really easy for us to take God's gifts and just assume that we either deserve them or that we've forgotten how we got to where we are. Joshua 24 is one of those moments where the people of God are called to remember what God has done. They're called to reflect on the spiritual significance of what he has done and then also to recommit themselves to future obedience. So in Joshua 24, we have this covenant renewal that takes place. To set the scene of what's happening here, the people of Israel have now crossed into the promised land and they've conquered it all and they're getting ready to settle into their inherited lands. Before they are released to begin enjoying the promised land, Joshua calls all of them to the city of Shechem. Why Shechem? Well, because it was at Shechem where God first promised the land of Canaan to Abraham. As well, it was the place that when Israel entered into the promised land for the first time, that Moses had instructed them, and they did this. They gathered at this city, and half the Israelites gathered on one side of the city on one mountain, and half of the Israelites gathered on the other side, uh, on another mountain, and they echoed back and forth of the blessings and the curses of obeying or disobeying God. In fact, Moses told them that they were to do this. That's why he even wrote the entire book of Deuteronomy was so that when they walked into the promised land, they would have a covenant renewal moment. And they did it in Joshua chapter 8. And now they're doing it again in Joshua 24. Let's see what happens. He calls on them to remember. In verses 1 through 12, Joshua records, or rather recounts, the redemptive historical events that had happened to them. So look at verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Verse 3, Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. That's the first one. And then if you were to read on, you would see that he also identifies that they were delivered from Egypt in verse 5. They crossed the Red Sea in verse 6. They were involved in the wilderness wandering in verse 6. They conquered the promised land in verse 8. They received the blessing from Balaam in verse 10. And they settled into the land of Canaan in verse 12. It's designed to be a very shortened summary of all the ways that God had been faithful to them. And then look at verse 12, or rather verse 13. The point of this was to call to mind God's grace to them. Here's what it says. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. In other words, Joshua wants to remind them, hey, when you go into the land of Israel that you've been given and you're living in houses, just remember, you didn't build those houses. And when you enjoy the uh, the fruit of your vineyards, remember, you didn't plant those vineyards. Remember, you're living in a land that God has given you. Why is he telling them this? Here's why. Because it is very much like the human race to take the gifts of God and begin to forget that they were, in fact, gifts. We begin to think of them as rights, or we begin to think of them as something that is simply the normal thing that we deserve. 
We float into life and we forget from where we have come. And so that's what covenant renewal is meant to call to mind, to remind us where have we come from and why are we doing this? And when it comes to church, mm, that's exactly what we're asking you to do, is to remember why do you come to church? You may ask that after walking away from a really bad sermon or something. Why do I come to church? But we want you asking that in the context of thinking about the purpose or your vision of what it means to be a part of this body. So they were called to remember. They were also called to reflect. They were to reflect on their allegiance to God. What Joshua does is he, he leverages the past and invites them to think carefully about who they are and who God is and what they are called to do. So in light of all of what God has done, what kind of people are we supposed to be? Look at verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see the call? He's asking them to recommit. He's asking them to reflect. He's building to this recommitment. Think about what God has done and think about what you're really committed to. And then we come to this final piece where he presses in for them to actually make this recommitment. So after remembering what God has done and reflecting on their commitment, he invites them to now recommit themselves to God, to renew, if you will, their allegiance, to reaffirm their covenant relationship with their God. He calls on them to renew this covenant. Not because the covenant has been broken by God, but because as human beings we tend to forget the significance of this covenant. Look at verse 16. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did the, those great signs in our sight and preserved us all, preserved us in all the way we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites, who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. So they, they recommit right there. And this is kind of funny in the text. Joshua, though, doesn't take them at their first statement. He's lived with them way too long. He, uh, he says to them, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God and he is a jealous God. So he kind of gets in their grill. You, you guys, all, you, I've been with you for 40 years in the wilderness. I, I know you people. So he presses in on them. And then they, they say, no, they, they do in fact recommit to the Lord. And then Joshua does three things. In verse 25, first, he makes a covenant with them. Then he secondly records the words of the covenant in verse 26. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And then third, verse 26, And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And so what happens here is that the people renewed their commitment to be faithful to their covenant. That together as one people, what they did is they reaffirmed, they renewed, they, they restated. This is what we believe about God, and this is what we believe that He's called us to be. And in so doing, they renewed their covenant. I mentioned other covenant renewals. There's instructions for one in Deuteronomy 27 to 28. There's, um, there's one in, um, Deuteronomy 29 through 30. 
As Moses is ending his life, he has the people renew their covenant in Moab before they cross over into the Jordan. So the point is that in Israel's history, as it related to their covenant with God, there were regular moments of renewal. And that these moments, these covenant renewal moments, were designed to remind people as to what they believed and to help them get on the same page together as to what it is that God had called them to be and do. Now, the Old Testament isn't the only place that we have covenant renewal. We also have it in the New Testament. We have it in a lot of places, places maybe that you might not even realize or think about. The clearest example is the Lord's table. But there's also, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but there's also a sense of covenant renewal even in baptism. Not the same way with the Lord's Supper, but also with baptism. Think what happens with baptism. The waters of baptism do not create union with Christ. They show union with Christ. And when someone gives their testimony and they share and make a statement of their profession of faith in Christ, then they go into the water and as they come out, what's happening is that person is picturing an inward reality of what has happened. But isn't it interesting that when someone is sharing the story of how they came to Christ, that there is often some significant emotion connected with that story. And when they come out of the water, there's joy and gladness, not because their relationship with the Lord now is real as before, when it wasn't real before, but now as they come out of that water, it signifies that they have been called to walk in newness of life, that they are picturing and renewing, if you will, what their faith in Jesus really means. They show people... This is what happened to me as I go in the water and I come out. And that's why it's a significant moment. And that's why I would encourage you and exhort you that if you haven't been baptized, it's a very important step. I think it's a, 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 a situation that is not optional. I'm trying to say the words not optional or it's required of you to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. So there's a baptism piece. Now, there's also Lord's Supper. I don't know what you think about the Lord's Supper. We do it once a month here. The plate comes by, you receive it if you're a follower of Jesus. But you know, that that Lord's Supper was designed to be a covenant renewal sort of a moment where we think of what it means that Christ has taken covenant vows on our behalf. He's made promises to us that He has kept those promises. He's sealed those promises through the Holy Spirit. And as we receive the elements... We remember the vows that Jesus made to us. And, as well, during that time, followers of Jesus also examine themselves and think about what it means to do this in remembrance of Him. We reflect on our lives to be sure that we're not participating in a manner that does a disservice to the gospel. And so that, that receiving those elements is a very significant moment as we renew our covenant and say, yes, I believe in the gospel, and yes, I am committed to the gospel, and yes, I will live out the gospel. So there's baptism, there's Lord's Supper. Here's another one. Sexuality in marriage is a covenant renewal. Now this connection may surprise you at first. I don't think it will when I'm done. But the Bible describes a union between a husband and wife as a one-flesh union, that something supernatural and special happens. In fact, so much so that Paul describes it as a great mystery when he speaks about Christ's relationship with the church. So sexuality in the context of marriage is the physical display of a spiritual reality. It is the display of the one flesh union. And in so doing, sex in the context of marriage reinforces and renews 
those covenant promises. And that's why sex outside of marriage is wrong. And that's why sex in marriage is not only encouraged, but even commanded. I've been informed with my understanding of this with some things that Tim Keller has said. And let me just read to you a quote. It says this, The Bible does not... The Bible says, don't unite with someone physically unless you are willing to unite with the person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way. Because you have given up your freedom and bound yourself in marriage. Then, once you have given yourself in marriage, sex is a way of maintaining and deepening that union as the years go by. There is a need to rekindle the heart and renew the commitment. And there must be an opportunity to recall all that the other person means to you and to give yourself anew. So sex between a husband and wife is the unique way to do that. Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful, God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place of security for vulnerability and intimacy. But though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. It is your covenant renewal service. Do you see? This is some, some significant things that relate to this idea of covenant and what it means to renew that covenant. And frankly, I don't know that we think in terms of covenant and covenant renewal as often as we should in terms of our most important relationships, in terms of our marital covenant or in terms of our church covenant. So this idea of covenant and covenant renewal is exceptionally important. And part of the problem is that we just live in a culture where covenants are not valued, they're not cherished. And honestly, we don't have that many moments for us to really solemnly think about the covenants that we've made. I don't know what you do when you go to a wedding, but when I go to a wedding, I can't help but think about what I've committed myself to when I hear the vows being given by a husband and wife. I will sit there in the audience, I'll grab my ring, and I'll just listen and let those those vows just kind of wash over me. In fact, uh, about a year or so ago, we attended a, a wedding, and uh, in the course of that week, my wife and I had a really bad argument, I mean a really, really bad one, and we had reconciled like we had done everything we were supposed to do, and, and yet, you know, there was still kind of tension. It's happened to you, Right? Right? Okay. So, so I'm sitting there and, and I'm thinking about all the things that we've been arguing about and how there's still tension. And I'm hearing these vows that are being said over me. And I'm grabbing my ring and I'm thinking, what am I doing? Listen to these vows. They're incredible. Even if she's wrong, I still need to love her. <laughs> I wasn't thinking that. Do you get the point, don't you? Is that you hear the vows and you're reminded of the, you're reminded of what you've committed yourself to. And so this covenant renewal piece is a really important part of what it means for us to keep the covenants that we've made. As well, it's an important part about what it means for us to be the church. 
Because so often church becomes just this more consumeristic sort of thing where we come to church looking to get. And at one level, I understand that and I affirm that. You should get something from your church. But you also should be here because of a covenant, because of commitments that have been made to other people. So the gathering of God's people in a church, as the church, is very important. And historically, and even in our church, the baseline for how people committed themselves to one another is in the form of a church covenant. So this idea of church covenant is not a new idea historically. Let me tell you how this came about. It really began about 400 years ago in the 1600s. As early Baptists and Congregationalists landed in the United States, they had removed themselves from the Anglican Church and from the Roman Catholic Church. And the question was, so when you have a group of people who are not connected to a denomination officially, and they begin organizing and meeting, when do they actually become a church? That's a really important question, isn't it? Can a group of three people in someone's house just say, we're a church? Well, when do they become a church? And so in the 1600s, they wrestled with this, the Congregationalists and Baptists did, in terms of when does a church actually become a church? And the answer was that a group of people become a church by virtue of the covenant that they make between each other. In fact, Richard Mather and John Cotton in 1649 said that a church could not be established merely on a bare profession of faith, attendance in services, or baptism, since none of those things make a person a part of a particular church. So at one level, if you're not a member here, when you say you go to College Park Church, that's true. But to think about it, that membership means something even deeper than just going and attending. There's something significant, something covenantal, something very important that's happening. What establishes the visible union of believers into a church is that they make a covenant with each other to be the church. So it's not just a place that we happen to go where we see people who also happen to go there. That's not really church. That's a gathering. A church is a group of people who have covenanted together and said, we're going to meet at 96th in town and we're going to keep a covenant together that we're going to walk in righteousness and I'm going to help you and you're going to help me. That's essentially what it means to be the church. And I would suggest to you that there are probably many of us who that is a really new thought. As well, there were historically seasons of covenant renewal. So what we're talking about today is not new historically The covenant and the renewal of it for people to take, let's say, 30 days or take a month and to read over the covenant. And that's what we're going to ask you to do, to take 30 days to read over it, to maybe read it in your small groups, to read it for family devotions, to talk about it, to just maybe read it personally a few times over the next 30 days, that there was a regular season of renewal in the life of the church. And this especially became true when pastors were concerned about the number of children being born into the church who had no idea about what it was what it was like to not be in church, who were not um, converted later in life but early in life, and praise the Lord that they were. But the danger of that is they just kind of grew up growing, going to church and they didn't really know what church was all about. It's called the halfway covenant, where children who were a part of the church, quote-unquote, but they weren't genuinely converted. And so a strategy to try and help the church to become renewed was to invite the people to really think about, so what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to, to be a covenanted community together? And therefore they called for seasons of renewal. And you know what's interesting? This began in the 1600s, continued on in the 1700s, and some historians believe that the first great awakening had its seeds in the covenant renewal movement in the 16 and 1700s. As people began to think about, you know what? 
Am I really walking with the Lord? And what am I really committed to? And what am I committed to besides just gathering in this building with a bunch of people? What, what does this really mean? Now, our own church history and our own church covenant has its roots in the Baptist denomination. We are a non-denominational Baptist church, but we still hold to and use the best of that Baptist church movement and that tradition. Our, our church covenant that we have, it's one of the few historical documents that we have. I mean, we're only 30 years old. That's not that old in comparison to the scope of church history. But our church covenant was written in 1853 by a pastor named Jane, John Newton Brown, or J. Newton Brown. Before beards were popular in the NFL, Mr. Newton here, Mr. Brown was nailing it. So he, uh, he was a prominent Baptist pastor, a theologian and publisher in New Hampshire. He actually had a part in the crafting of the New Hampshire Confession, which was the and still is a, a major confessional statement for Baptist churches. His covenant that he wrote was widely distributed. It got into the hymnal that was distributed to most of the Baptist churches in the 1800s, such that Brown's covenant became really the standard church covenant for most Baptist churches for the last 150 years. In fact, across many different sort of Baptist traditions, the two largest African-American Baptist denominations in the country adopted this particular covenant. As well, the Southern Baptists adopted this covenant, and the Fundamental Baptists adopted this covenant as well. So, interesting, there's this unanimity among this particular covenant. One of the reasons that we have a formal process for membership at our church is because we believe it's important for people to publicly identify that, yes, this isn't just a church I attend, this is a place that I belong that there's a, a covenant step. And for years, we've asked our members to both agree to our confession of faith and also to agree to the church covenant. But as elders, what we're realizing is we've not used that covenant very well. And we want to take it sort of out of our history and bring it above surface and see how we might be able to use that and talk about that more as a congregation over the next number of months in the next few years. We're striving to raise the awareness of what this covenant really means. We believe as well that we need to more clearly define what it means for us to be a church together, what it means to shepherd one another, and then to renew that commitment to each other. As we thought about what it means to shepherd a large congregation, there are some important conclusions that we've come to. Let me share them with you. First, We believe, as elders, that the oversight of shepherding is a mandate for church leaders. Now, why is that important? It's important because when a church gets to a particular size, there's some thinking that just says, you know what, when you get to about 4,000, you just can't even do it anymore, so you just shouldn't do it. Don't worry about it. And we're saying, no, we think that's a biblical mandate, and no matter how large we become, we have to figure out how to do shepherding, that that's a non-negotiable item. I hope that you understand that, and I hope that you appreciate that, because that's a fundamental commitment that we believe we have biblically. Secondly, we believe that first and foremost, as elders, the focus of our, shep- of our shepherding has to be on those who have identified themselves as members. So when we think biblically, who are we obligated to shepherd? Who are we going to be held accountable for? When we stand before God, who is he going to hold us accountable for? The answer that we come to is our members. Now, what that doesn't mean is that if you're a non-member, it doesn't mean that we're not going to care for you anymore. When you come up 
to me in the hallway or you ask for prayer from one of our elders, no one's going to say, are you a member or not? And if you're not, I'm sorry, I can't pray for you. No one's asking, you know, your kids as they come in, are your parents members? Okay, you sit over here. You know, no one's going to do, there's none of that. At the same time, we also have to acknowledge biblically there is a different level of responsibility. And we would love for more of you to covenant together and to become part of the membership of this body. In fact, my hope is that because of this conversation, there'll be a number of you that are like, oh, I get it now. I understand what it means to be a covenant member of this church, and you would desire to move that direction. And what we are saying to you is if you are a member, that we have a covenanted relationship with you that is unique from everyone else that lives in this city and even people who are inside this very building because of that membership and that covenant together. It also means this, that while we rejoice with the blessings of many people in our church, as elders, we're committed to finding intentional ways to be sure that we're shepherding people well. And by intentional, I mean we're going to have to do some things organizationally and strategically in order to figure out, are our members even here anymore? We've had a historical system that we've used, and it's okay, but it hasn't, it's not worked. And it, we've, we've gone way beyond its scalability anymore. We've got to find new ways to determine who's here and who isn't here so that we can do a good job at least of knowing who our members are and if they're even still a part of the regular gathering of God's people. And so we're going to ask you to do some things in the next 30 days to identify, I'm here. And if you don't like that, and it's just kind of awkward, we're asking you to do it anyways, because that's part of what it means to be part of a large church. You might wish, well, I just wish that they didn't have to ask me if I was here. I wish they knew that I was here. Well, I'm sure some people know that you're here. Not everyone knows that you're here. But the reality is that for many of us, that church of 400 or that church of 500, that you, you're not in that church anymore. And we have different ways of interacting together, different relationships, and we have to find a whole different way of shepherding one another And as well, it also means that we have to do that not just through our elders or through our pastors. We have to do that through all of us together. And that's why using small groups and ABFs and training up lay leaders are a part of the solution. We can't just add more and more elders. We think to have an eldership of 50 or so people would be unwise. And we can't just keep hiring staff. We just couldn't afford it. We don't think that's wise. As well, we intend to take the member covenant and to elevate its importance, to rehearse it on a regular basis, And then to invite you over the next 30 days to begin thinking, praying, and evaluating what does this covenant really mean? What does it mean to be a member here? So finally, let me explain to you specifically what we're going to be asking you to do and what we're going to do together as a church. At the end of my sermon, I'm going to read to you the church covenant. And what I'd like you to do is to take time over the next month to prayerfully consider what does it mean to be a member at College Park Church, even if you're not, but especially if you are. I want you to read the covenant. Take some time to study it, to pray over it, to read it to your your children or in your small group or in some other context. I want you to really think about what it means to be a part of a covenant community. Secondly, this covenant in 1853 is a really well-written document, but there's a couple words that don't mean the same thing anymore. And and so our elders are recommending some slight changes on some wording. And so we're going to have a members meeting on February the 15th after our Fresh Encounter service to propose some wording changes to that covenant. And then pending congregational approval of that new covenant, on February 16th, we'll be sending all of our members either an email or a letter asking you to identify that I'm here. And it'll be simple. You get an email Click a little box, send it back. It'll give you an opportunity to share some prayer requests or any way that our elders can be praying for you. Think of it as a communication tool, a way just for us to know that you are here. 
that you are renewing your covenant, that you've, um, you're still a part of this ministry. And then what that allows us to do, we'll begin this in March, is the process of following up on those people who we haven't heard from. Uh, those folks, perhaps, who have moved, who we didn't know, or they're in another church and we didn't know. And just to figure out what, what's happening with our membership. And then in May, we'll present to you as a congregation what our findings are and what it is that we sense the Lord doing. Our hope and our prayer is that God will use this in each of our lives in order to strengthen our understanding of what it means for the church to be the church. We hope that it will encourage you to see that being a part of a church is more than just a place that you go. It's a community that you belong to and that there are responsibilities and commitments that we make to one another and that we have a collective responsibility to one another for the sake of the gospel in the world to shepherd each other. That when somebody goes down who's a member in this church, it's your responsibility and my responsibility to figure out what can we do to help that brother or sister And that God has blessed us with a very wonderful group of people, large in number. And we need to embrace this shepherding mantra, all of us together. God's been faithful to this church for 30 years. Those of you who've been around here for a long time, you know how God has been faithful to this place. Statistically, and given some things in her history, this church should not be here. And yet God preserved her. And there's a reason for that. And there's a reason why you're here. There's a reason why I'm here. And that God has us together for this particular season in history, not just to come together on Sundays and learn more and grow more, that's part of it, but also so that we can be more, so that we can belong to each other and understand what it means to really be the church, so we can effectively shepherd, all of us can effectively shepherd everyone that's been entrusted to our care. Now, as we close, I want to read to you the member covenant. It's on the back side of the manuscript this morning. If you want to take it out and read it along with me as I read it to you, or just close your eyes and listen to the beauty of what we've committed to. If you've never heard a church covenant before, here it comes. And this is what it means to be a part of a church. Some of you are like, oh, that's what it means to be a part of a church. If you're not a Christian today, this is what we would like to become. And we're not perfect But this is what we're striving for because of our relationship with Jesus. Here's what it says. Having been led by the Holy Spirit to receive the Lord Jesus as our Savior, and on the public confession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God and in this assembly solemnly and joyfully endeavor to keep the spirit of this covenant as one body in Christ. We purpose, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, in holiness and love, to promote its fruitfulness and spirituality, to attend its services regularly, to sustain its worship ordinances and doctrines, to submit to its discipline and the authority of its officers, to give it a sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin, to give faithfully of time and talent in its activities, to contribute cheerfully and regularly as God has prospered us, to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, to the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel throughout all nations. We also purpose to maintain family and private devotion to the Lord, to train our children according to the word of God, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk carefully in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our conduct, to abstain from all activities, habits, and lifestyles that dishonor our Lord Jesus Christ, cause stumbling to a fellow believer, or hinder the gospel witness 
to be zealous in our efforts to advance the cause of Christ, our Savior, and to give Him preeminence in all things. We further purpose to encourage one another in the blessed hope of our Lord's return, to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feelings and in courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation. We moreover purpose that when we leave this church, we will as soon as possible unite with another church of like faith where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. The vision is for us to be the kind of church that has a great number of people that we are blessed to care for, but that we intentionally find ways to shepherd and care for one another, knowing that God has entrusted souls to our care. And that as a church, we need to find ways to shepherd each other to be able to run all the way to the end of our lives, God helping us to be faithful to Him. Now, at the end of the service, there's going to be some folks who are going to be up here for prayer, some of our pastors and some of our prayer team. And in fact, if you're one of those folks, why don't you just come up right now? And we did this last week, we're going to do it again, because one of the things that I want to change is I I want you to think about prayer after the service, not as something that only like super messed up or in crisis people need but we're all messed up at any level aren't we and we all need prayer and we want the church to be a place where you can be prayed for just as you're making it through the regular ordinary groaning pains of life in the last week something may have happened in your life and you're just like i'm overburdened maybe you're here today and there's just a spiritual lethargy and you just want it to be gone or you don't understand what it means to be in community and God just placed something on your heart to pray about that. Or maybe you have some other burden or challenge that's just going on in your life. These folks are here today to pray over you and to pray with you. The point being, you are not meant to walk alone. And that's what church is all about. And so they're here. So every service, there ought to be people, I know the needs within our congregation, there ought to be people up here asking for prayer because we're a needy people and we live in a very broken world. So these brothers and sisters are here for that very reason. Okay? So I'm going to pray, and we're going to be dismissed. And then we're going to do the work of loving each other and praying over each other today. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that in your grace and in your mercy you have brought us together, and you have entrusted our souls to one another. And we pray that even now, as we go pick up our kids, as we make our way to adult Bible fellowship classes, as we make our way home, that our our conversations and the aura around us would be covenant-keeping in its commitment to one another. And so we pray that you would guard us from sin this week and help us to walk faithfully, that we might be the kind of people who keep the covenant that we've made to you and to this body to walk in righteousness. So help us, Lord, to become the kind of place that cares deeply for people's hearts, even though there's so many of us. Give us strength and knowledge And bless the season of renewal as we enter into it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming. Come and pray.